Unless you've been living under a dietary rock, you know that paleo is all of the rage. And if you know anything about paleo, or even if you don't, the, one of the ideas is a whole lot of meat and a whole lot of fat. So, you know, of course, going paleo is completely inconsistent with being vegetarian or vegan. Or is it? Well, we're going to find out on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, usually starting from the feet first, but now we're going to be moving up into the gut and beyond. Um, and of course, you know, feet are your foundation. That's why we talk about that. We're going to talk about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, whether you are running, walking, hiking, doing yoga, CrossFit, cycling, whatever it is you like to do, to do that enjoyably, to do that efficiently. Did I mention enjoyably? I know I did. Because if you're not having fun, just do something different until you are. Life's too short. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com. Normally, I hold up my ZeroShoes.com t-shirt, but I'm not wearing one today because I didn't know what day it was. That's a whole other story. And uh, if you don't know about the podcast, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. I call it a movement movement because we are creating a with Zero Shoes a movement that is about you, about natural movement, letting your feet bend and flex and move and do what they're supposed to do. So for the part that's involving you, that groundswell thing that creates a movement, just go check out the previous episodes and then find out all the places you can engage with the content and then like and share and give us a thumbs up and hit the like or the bell button on YouTube or you know how to do it. I don't need to tell you how to, If well, if you want to be part of the tribe, just please subscribe. That's the gist of it. So we are joined today with someone who I've known of, we just realized for over 13 years and I'm only now getting to finally have this conversation. So Brendan, first of all, pleasure to meet you. I'm going to let you do your own intro for who the hell you are and what you're doing here. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Good to finally connect today after <laughs> all that time. So little background, I started off running in high school. I just really enjoyed it. Wanted to be a professional athlete. Realized it was really hard to become a professional runner. So thought, okay, well, maybe triathlon, you know, maybe I can do that. So learned how to swim and bike and you know kept up the running and it was actually easier to do that full-time as a career than just running oddly enough but uh it's easier to get sponsors and it, there were more races and there's some prize money and stuff and so I, I got really into that when well right out of high school really and i was just trying to be as good as i could in a short amount of time as i could to try and be a professional athlete so i found recovery was a huge part of that of course if you can recover more quickly you can do more training in less time, you improve in, in a shorter amount of time. So I really focused on recovery from a very early stage. So that's what got me into nutrition. It was very purpose-based. It wasn't um, anything other than just knowing that if, if I ate well, or at least at that point, assuming that if I ate well, I would perform better. And then just playing around with different ways of eating. And that's what got me into nutrition and kind of just went from there. So what were some of the things that you experimented with that didn't work for you? And of course, the obvious question, since many people, when they just think recovery is the most important thing and they want to recover faster, the first thing they turn to is various PEDs, performance enhancing drugs. Was that at all tempting also? Not for me, just because it was so, you know, I don't even know how I would have got into that. This is, you know, right out of high school. I didn't, I didn't know anyone who do that. I mean, there's some you know, you hear about these professional cyclists in Europe and, and so on, and that's part of the culture there. But I grew up in, in Canada and doing triathlon. It just, I don't know, <laughs> it just didn't even ever come up. But yeah, I tried, you know, high carb, low carb, high protein, low protein, you know, the all the diets that sort of circulate at the time, it was called a zone, but since, you know, South Beach and then different variations of that. And, um, you know, then there's carbo-loading as well, of course, that people are quite familiar with, I'm sure, at least the term. And, you know, all different ways of doing things. 
And then I tried plant-based and at first it didn't work that well. I was hungry a lot of time. I was tired, wasn't recovering that well, but I was really just doing it wrong. I was just loading up on a, a lot of starch really. And then finding elements from plants that, that I wasn't getting in, in my kind of you know, very basic plant-based diet, which of course, plant-based doesn't necessarily mean healthy. You can eat a lot of really refined junk foods and and still they originate from plants. I have a friend who's a diehard vegan whose diet consists mostly of desserts. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely a thing um, that can be done. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I just found like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin B12, iron, calcium, uh, complete protein, Plant-based sources for each of those, blend them together, had a blender drink every day. It tasted horrible, but it was, it was functional, completely worked. And I was able to train more and therefore improve more quickly. So it wasn't any sort of magic thing. It just allowed me to do more, which is just what I was looking for. And then eventually, well, who I had not met yet, uh, who became my, my partner with Vega, we created Vega based on, on that that I was making for myself you know, many years later. Well, what was the original drink? Um, you gave me a flashback around this same era, actually probably a little before when you were doing your experimenting in the movie Heaven Can Wait, which I think I saw when I was like 17. So I was an all-American gymnast back then. And my training partners, we were all totally into experimenting with diet as well. And um, back then, protein powders tasted like they were unpalatable. And so I'm, I'm in the movie theater with one of my best friends and another gymnast. And in the movie, he talks about having a liver and whey shake. And we kind of look at each other going, oh, we haven't tried that yet. <laughs> Knowing that it would be completely disgusting, but nonetheless, we're going, oh, that's a possibility. So what was in that first, you know, horrible tasting thing? Because Vega, obviously not horrible tasting. Um, so that's a big transition to go from whatever you started with to Vega. So I want to hear that story too, but got to start with, you know, the unpalatable side. Yeah, you know, I don't remember exactly when I go back to, you know, like when I was 16, 17 years old, but it was basically, it was a combination of flax seeds that were ground up, hemp. I think there was some some sort of rice protein in there, you know, and a lot of greens, a lot of, uh, you know, arugula and spinach, kale, that type of stuff. There was some, like, even nutritional yeast and stuff that was, was kind of weird to add in. But yeah, just this whole mixture of things. So that, combining, um, combining the bitterness of arugula and the cheesiness of nutritional yeast, how could you go wrong? Yeah, right. <laughs> so that, it was, um, yeah, this weird concoction that, that, you know, yeah, the first few were just absolutely, <laughs> I just couldn't, couldn't get them down. But then, then it evolved to the point where I could, and then the, the functionality offset the, the horrible taste. Well, before we get into the evolution of Vega, and I'd like you to describe more about what that is for people who don't know, which I, I'm assuming there's one or two people on the planet at this point who don't. Talk to me. Wait, I had a thought that just popped in and totally out of my head. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the way we teased this episode was the whole idea of vegan and vegetarian versus paleo. And I'd love for you to talk about your thoughts about paleo and what you're doing, but I have to preface it with, I was at the, one of the first paleo conferences, the paleo FX conference 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And it was very entertaining. At one point they had a panel discussion and there was 10 paleo experts, the only 10 people who had written books on paleo at the time. And a, none of them could agree on what paleo was. B, four of them were morbidly obese. At least six of them had high C-reactive protein levels that they weren't talking about in public. And the whole thing was, was a riot. And I said to one of the doctors, you know, this idea that you're presenting of one diet for everybody seems a little crazy to me to begin with because I'm a sprinter. Why would I eat the same thing as, you know, some triathlete or ultra marathoner? And besides, I'm a genetic freak. 
And he's, what do you mean by that? I said, well, for men over at that time, I guess I was over 50 or 45 at the time. I said, I'm one of the fastest Jews in the world, if not the fastest in my age group. So that's an unusual thing. And I'm like, you know, I was an all-American sprinter. So not a whole lot of competition for that. So paleo in the early days, no one really even knew what it was, but it started to catch on. And now here we are a decade later. And again, it's, it's all the rage. So talk to me about that interesting veggie vegan thing versus paleo. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And a lot of people, of course, think that vegan and paleo are opposite, but that's, it's not necessarily the case. And, you know, paleo is very specific if, if the definition can be agreed upon, but vegan's not like we just talked about. I mean, you can have a lot of junk food that's, that's vegan, of course. I mean, most things originate as plants and, you know, then animals eat some of those plants and some people eat the animals, but they're, you know, most things are plant-based, of course, you know, like, like any, any type of junk food, it, you know, there might be some dairy and, and some things here or there, but there it's mostly plant-based. So that's very, very broad. And I've, you know, been talked about, been proposed that I do like a vegan versus paleo discussion or yeah, something, yeah, but it's just, yeah. it's just too loose. Like you can't, there's so many things that are allowed in a vegan diet that I personally wouldn't eat, of course, like all these refined foods. Right. So I very simply, like my diet consists of vegetables and, and I do eat grains for sure. I eat, I eat rice and sprouted buckwheat, wheat, quinoa, amaranth. I like sprouted bread, like the Silver Hills mm-hmm. sprouted bread. Each slice has about six grams of protein. So, and that's just naturally occurring from the grain that's sprouted. Avocado, the smoothies I make, of course. So I pretty simply... And paleo is about that too. A lot of it, if it's done right, is about simplicity. Of course, they don't allow grains, but you know, a lot of vegetables, there's a lot of crossover there. Well, you know, and the grain thing is fascinating. I mean, like, first of all, my argument about paleo is that we know so little about the Paleolithic era and it took lasted for a long time around the entire planet. And of course, people in different climates didn't eat the same thing. And what we've learned, and so in a, in a certain way, saying that, you know, this is a thing that's paleo is like going to a movie theater that's full, if we remember what full movie theaters look like, and picking a random group of, say, 10 people, and then extrapolating from those 10 people to the rest of the theater. And it just doesn't work. And of course, a lot of archaeological evidence shows that in many cultures in the paleolithic time, they did eat a lot of grains, and they were making bread, and they were eating these things that many people in the paleo world, or at least people who think they understand paleo, say you're not allowed to eat. That's not what we, what our ancestors ate. And, or the whole idea that once we started cultivating grains, that's when everything went to shit, which the evidence is not there for that either. So I like diving underneath and seeing what's going on. But what the point you just made that a big part of it is really just being more about unprocessed and simple than it is about some specific food group. And that one, you know, kind of hard to, hard to disagree that any unprocessed food is better than a Twinkie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We can, you know, don't have to overthink things here, but then, you know, I have seen this happen too, where people will read a list of ingredients and not understand what some of them are and assume they're, they're bad, you know, and like, give me, can you think of an example? So like, um, different types of gums, like guara gum or xanthan gum, for example. And those aren't necessarily bad things. Like you just might not understand what they are, why they're there. But when, companies are trying to make food efficiently for a lot of people and have it last and, you know, have it have this, you know, certain mouthfeel and stuff like that. Some of those gums are, are used. And, and when you see how they're made, a lot of the times it's not even, it's not that bad, but it was just that whole thing. I remember a while back, like if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it sort of thing. I, I mean, I'm not really on that, right. <laughs> that train either. Right. Like I think 
you know, not understanding something and therefore assuming it's bad is probably not a super healthy way to, to look at things either. Like it's okay to look in and do some research and like, oh yeah, I haven't heard of that. You know, I'll, I'll learn about that, why it's in there. And, you know, it's not a food company trying to kill me. It's just like, there, there is a reason for it. Brendan, if people couldn't opine about things over which they know nothing about, the entire internet would cease to exist. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> so... Strong so, opinions for things you have nothing you know nothing about. But, yeah. yeah, well, there's actually a, a name for that something Kruger effect. I blanked on the Dunning Kruger effect, which is the people who know very little about something think they know a whole lot more about it than they actually do, and are much more attached to their opinions than people who actually know a lot about it. Um, right. it it's a well documented cognitive bias that um, I think is controlling the entire planet at the moment. But that's a whole other story. So I want to dive into what led you from that to then writing Thrive and what the effect of that was, because I remember when that book came out, I mean, it really kind of took the world by storm because you really were one of the first high-performance athletes who came out as a vegan or plant-based person before plant-based was actually a term that anyone used. And I can only imagine what kind of response you got. But so can you talk to me about just bringing the book to life and what happened once that baby was born? For sure. Yeah. I wrote the first version in 2003. It came out in 2004. And you know, there were some athletes around who ate plant-based, but just didn't really talk about it much. And of course, information back then didn't flow the way that it does today. So it's harder to dig stuff up. But, you know, really, it was just, it was frequently asked questions put into book form, basically, because I was getting asked all the time, because I was improving at a faster rate than a lot of people I was training with. So they were asking me what I was doing. And I told them I was eating plant based. And so they started asking me what that comprised of what that was like, and, you know, what my thoughts were on how it helped. Why was that? So I really just wrote that out in, in book form. Um, it was a short book. The first one was 80 pages. Then I expanded, I think it was 112 pages. And then it was just self-published and it did better than I had expected. And then it was published an expanded version over 300 pages with recipes was published by Penguin in 2007, I believe it was. But it was really, you know, it starts off with just my nutritional philosophy and, and different principles, like one being high net gain. So for example, switching over from foods that or like like pasta and you know foods that don't have a lot of nutrition but take a lot of digestive energy so you're spending a lot of energy with very little nutritional return and that's the number one reason for obesity in north america is simple overconsumption but the reason we overconsume is a lot of the food we eat is you know not that nutrient dense so your hunger signal remains active your stomach right. physically becomes full but your brain tells you to keep eating because you need the nourishment because food used to be synonymous with nutrition back with our you know our ancient ancestors he ate more he got more nourished but Today, with all the refined foods, that's not the case. So people's hunger signal remains active. So trying to find foods that take less energy, digestive energy, and return more nutrition. So vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants. So for example, switching over from those refined grains, to things like sprouted amaranth, quinoa, buckwheat, wild rice, very little digestive energy spent and a lot of nutrition back. So, you know, just simple things like that. Like if you don't spend energy, you still have it. So right. I had way more energy because I just wasn't spending so much, you know, with trying to digest these foods that were hard to digest and, you know, just little, little things like that. And then hormonal health was another element too, that I, I looked at. I found that there was a period I was training so much that my cortisol was really high. And when cortisol is high, stress hormone, you know, it's very hard to build muscle, hard to lose fat. You get hungry a lot. You crave caffeine and sugar. You know, you can gain weight even though you're exercising a huge amount. So it's not just calories in calories out. You know, I was gaining weight, even though I was training 35, 40 hours a week. And that was because my hormones were out. I was hormonally injured was the term that I started using because I think 
is very common and not necessarily through overtraining stress, but just stress, general stress, worrying about work, family, you know, all these things that people worry about, it does manifest physically, even if there's no physical strain like training, but just like I say, worry, mental aspect of it, people cause their cortisol to go up that causes all these issues. So learning how to bring that down, deal with stress and eat food that is higher net gain, which will bring down nutritional stress which raises your stress threshold. So you can actually stress more and not have those problems. And the good type of stress, complementary stress, as I talk about in the book, like exercise, sure, it's stress, like it does break down your body. So it is a type of stress physically, but you get a return. Your return is greater fitness. So that's a good spend, you know, like, sure, yeah, break down your by exercise, you get stronger. That's great. Worrying about things you have no control over, you get the same bad effect and you get no benefit. I call that uncomplimentary stress. So dividing stress into two main categories, reducing one where you get no return so that you can do more to the other where you do get a return means you can, you can train more and you become a better athlete in less time. So that was a great synopsis of the book for anyone who missed it. So then the book comes out and what was the response sort of positive and negative and, or just, you know, personal, what was your experience of having this thing that I don't remember, you know, what it did like bestseller level. I know it was all the rage among all my friends, but I I can only, I can't even imagine what it was like when that happened. Yeah. You know, it was, um, I was going around giving talks to little groups and the groups started getting bigger, (laughs) you know, so that was sort of my my only gauge. But I think the reason it struck a chord is that it was, it was very simple. You know, I explained in very simple terms how this way of eating and, and just general approach on overall holistic wellness worked well for me and it may work well for you. You know, certainly wasn't saying it's the only way. It's just something that I found helpful. And I spent a lot of time making bad decisions and, and it not working well. So, you know, that, that was, just, I wrote the sort of book that I would like to read is, is really the way I approached it because I spent, you know, 15 years fumbling around with this and I finally got a system that I found really worked. And, you know, if I go into something new and I'm trying to learn how to play guitar or invest or like whatever it is, right? Like I don't care about someone who's gone to school and learned in theory. Like I want to know, like this person fumbled around for a long time and then found a way that worked for him or her and and now has put it out there to save me all this time. And that's that's what I try to do for for other folks. And you know, if they tried it and they stuck with it, it, it worked and they felt good and they talked about it. And that's, I think that's how it spread. It was word of mouth. Yeah. So yeah, it just kind of grew organically. How long was it between Thrive and then starting to develop Vega? It was very tightly tied. So was that deliberate or coincidental? It was deliberate. I mean, in, in the beginning, like when I put the book out, so my friend Charles, who I actually, how I met him is I heard him, he was on the radio talking about Maca. M-A-C-A, you know, the Peruvian root vegetable. And this was 2003. This was... Nobody knew about it then. No one knew about it. And so he was the first person to import it into Canada from Peru. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is fascinating. This guy is really interesting. You know, this this thing sounds amazing. He talked about a lot of symptoms I had, like high cortisol, for example, which I didn't know I had until I heard him talking about the symptoms and realized that's what my issue was. So this maca really intrigued me. I contacted Charles and invited me over. We hung out at his house. <laughs> you know, he lived 15 minutes away from me, it turned out. And he just started this business, like I say, importing maca, selling it out of his garage. And I was just fascinated by it. So we started talking about collaborating and doing a replica of my blender drink and adding the maca um, that he just started importing. So that's what we did, you know, from day one, the day we met, we came up, we, I think it was six hours, we hung out and just hit it off. And, uh, came up with a vision for what would become Vega a year later. 
And yeah, so it was pretty short time from when we dreamt it up to when, when we actually brought it out. But because I told him too, I was working on this book and, you know, that dovetailed perfectly because something like Vega is really not, there's no demand for something like that. There's a demand for the result. Everyone wants to feel good, but there wasn't a demand for, you know, an expensive, horrible tasting drink, <laughs> right? So um, <laughs> education was a huge part of the company and that, that's where my book fit in. You know, that was the why Vega was the how. So if someone would you know, spend the time to read the book or listen to one of my talks, they're like, yeah, okay, you know, that's all logical. That makes sense. I'll give this a go. So it, that's why it took so long to take off because right. it was just like, it was literally like sometimes I have four people show up at my talks, you know, but if they, they tried it and then they felt good and they talked about it and people saw them they're like, wow, you have more energy, your skin's cleared up, you know, you look great what are you doing? And then they say, Oh, I've read this book and I'm buying this Vega. And so, you know, it's spread, but we're in year 17 now, <laughs> you know, it was a while ago. What's it like actually going from those early days? I don't know what the manufacturing was like, you know, on day one to now seeing this product on an end cap at Costco. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it was over time for sure. Like there are several like, years, like, like all overnight successes. Exactly. Yeah. All overnight successes <laughs> take many decades, but yeah. yeah, there was a point like at year seven, I think that we're like, yeah, okay, this could work. <laughs> and this is like, <laughs> this is the road. I'm doing the math in my head for us. You know, that's so funny. It was about year six for us, or it was the same thing where we're real. I mean, we knew we were onto something from day one, but like year six, year seven was like, oh, this is for real, for real. Right. No, it's exactly like you say, like you believe it, like you yeah. know yourself. And it's so clear to you, right? Like you totally get it. It's just like, how, how do other people not get this? And then eventually you're like, all right, people are starting to get this. But yeah, I think it was year seven was a big year for us. We sold the company in year 11 to White Wave, which was then bought by Danone, um, right. a, a French uh, yogurt maker that still owns. It's actually for sale right now. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, we'll, we'll see what, what we can do there. Maybe I'll get, you know, get more involved again. But um, yeah, the, the idea, of course, is once we got it to a certain point, is to try and get distribution to go up and, you know, just allow more people to get it at a lower price. And prices kept coming down. You know, that's what yeah. we wanted. We didn't want it to always be for this, you know, kind of elite group who, who really got it. We want it to be accessible. And that's what, like with anything, right? When you scale it, the cost can come down with food and it can be more accessible, but it has to start somewhere. So you need those folks who are really engaged, like at Whole Foods, and really are willing to, to take the time and, and the effort to give it a go. And then it goes from there, you know, like, like most things. Do you ever find yourself in a store standing next to a Vega display with people checking it out who have no idea who you are? Yeah. I've, you know, I've like when I used to travel around, I would see people looking at all the different ones and, and they pick up Vega and they're looking at it and oh, like, cause you want to know, right? Like, and I've asked them sometimes too. And you, you know, you're probably like, it's like, you want to know, like it's the best research you can do. Just like, oh, why did this catch your eye? And what do you like about it? And, or what do you not like about it? And why did you put it back down and pick up another one? You know, you want to know these things. Did you ever do the big reveal though? No, no, I've never done that. <laughs> so yeah, I, um, it's interesting because during the, that time, uh, like you said, you know, the internet was not the internet. And so you could enjoy a certain level of anonymity. Um, and you weren't also, while you were directly linked to the brand, it wasn't like your face was everywhere. And much to my chagrin, my face is kind of everywhere around zero shoes. And so I kind of can't go anywhere and be and hide out. Um, people spot me mostly because of this stuff before I, before I know what's going on. But it, nonetheless, it's like my favorite thing when someone starts talking 
talking about their zero shoes and they don't know who I am. And mm-hmm. the research part is great, but it's also just so fun having the little secret of them not knowing who they're quote, who they're talking to. Not like I'm, you know, patting myself on the back, but eventually I'll, sometimes I fess up and which is very entertaining. And sometimes I don't, it's kind of a hoot to do. You'll have to do it sometime and just say, by the way, I invented that. See what people do. <laughs> it will be very yeah. entertaining. I'll give that a go. But yeah, no, I've, I've listened to conversations before when people talking about Vega and different things and sort of like, yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> By the way, I have to talk about the elephant in the room. And that is, can you tell me why there's a solar system behind you? That's an unusual thing to have. Oh, I don't know. I just uh, like really? nothing. Come on. You got it somewhere. You put it up somewhere. There's got to be yeah, no, this poster that I actually have a dinosaur one next to it. You can't quite see it. There's a dinosaur poster over there. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it looked cool. And it's so it's exploration too. Like this is, these are all the different vehicles that uh, people have created to explore the solar system. Oh, that's super cool. Kind of interesting, just, you know, how ambitious some of these projects were. And, um, you know, you think back to the space race and back to, you know, going back to the early 50s, even when some of the technology invented was, it seems so far advanced, even what we have today. And it's like we've gone backwards in that element. It does seem that way. The, the sort of thrill of exploration. One of the biggest, I, I don't really have regrets in my life, except for a few and uh, little things. And this is one of them. A friend of mine, I was a ham radio operator way back when, and I met a guy whose dad was one of the people who invented the transistor. And wow. he had one, like the first one in a little 35 millimeter slide holder and he gave it to me. It was, you know, this gold leads and I can't even guess what it was worth. I don't know, but it was like one of the first transistors ever and it got lost in a move or something. Wow. Wow. Isn't that what started Intel and Silicon Valley, right? I mean, yeah, I think that I don't remember if it was, I think it was the fifties when they, when they came up with this. I mean, it really is the things that we've invented now are so much, obviously, just standing on the shoulders of stuff from 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, there's still amazing things going on now. I, I'm the only, my only real regret is the odds are good. Neither of us will live to see whatever is 200 years from now, which is going to be inconceivably, hopefully, inconceivably more interesting, given some of the things that people are working on. And people, I think maybe it was part of the space race that during that time, invention was just more prized. It wasn't about people making money per se, because a lot of these people were working for big companies where they weren't making money by doing it. But there was just this kind of national urge for coming up with these cool things. It was very Jetsons-like and when are we going to have jetpacks? And and now it's so much more pecuniary. It was a word that I used as a kid and heard again recently. So much more about the cash than it is about the cool things. It doesn't have that same pure kind of fun component. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And, and like I say, you know, you go back to some of those, looking at the some of those old planes that were, you know, even the Concorde, I mean, that, oh you know, God. many reasons got failed, but like pretty cool, could do Mach 2 and we have no supersonic flight now for passengers. And and that was just, you know, it's cost prohibitive and, and, and many things, but yeah, some of the, the early stuff that led to landing on the moon and, and just that technology. Mind blowing. So cool. And you look at the cars around back then and you're like, wow, this seems so primitive, but this spaceship, right. And it seems like we just haven't, advanced like advancements in communication like the phone i mean obviously iphone changed everything like yeah it seems like the future you know back when you're a kid you're like wow you could like pick up the phone and people were talking about there'd be a tv screen you would be able to see the person you're talking to and you couldn't even comprehend that now we have something this big you can walk around anywhere talk to anyone you want for free you see their face on the 
Like it just, it seems like the future there is advanced to become the way we envision the future. But then other things, it seems like we haven't advanced as quickly. Well, you know, ironically, some of the things that those advances have led to a sort of, well, I was going to say bifurcating, but it's more than bifurcating. We used to just all watch the same three television networks. And so we were all getting basically the same information. And now information is so disparate and so personalized that there's this sort of sort of separation. I have this fantasy that sometime in the not too distant future, we're all going to go, remember that internet thing? That was a funny experiment, wasn't it? And um, there's so many parts of it that are, I mean, look, I've made most of my living thanks to the internet. And if I could never turn on a computer again, that would be awesome. Other than checking email and buying things on eBay and, and Craigslist. I mean, that's all I really need. So, but we're never going back there. Yeah, I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> that ship has sailed, landed, crashed, burned, turned into kindling. It is way long gone. So in a totally uh, backing up to nutrition and things nutritional, can you think of anything that's, I mean, one of the things I do on the podcast, mostly about movement and footwear, of course, is talk about things that are kind of either mythological or what's the word I'm looking for? Something that's, I wish I could speak English. My wife and I moved into this new house, new to us house last week, and I'm so brain dead from moving. There's a word that I can't quite find. Anything that's that's sort of debunking, I mean, to a certain extent, everything you did about plant-based debunked a whole lot of stuff. But even in the plant-based world, aside from being plant-based doesn't mean just eating nothing but desserts. Can you think of anything else that is sort of part of the common wisdom or the zeitgeist or what just, you know, people think of when it comes to nutrition, that is just totally not the case that if you, you know, had to rail on something, it's the one that you find yourself, you know, keeping you up at night thinking, Oh, I can't believe they think that. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. I, I think, I mean, one of the things is protein, of course, like people are like, Oh, where do you get your protein? Like, how do you get enough protein? And when you eat more of a whole unrefined diet, you get quite a lot of protein. Like the example I used before, like, you know, a piece of highly refined white bread has no protein, it's just starch, but you eat one that's, you know, whole grain and sprouted as six grams of protein. That's as much as an egg. So when you're eating unrefined food, you get quite a lot of protein. Um, You know, it's not something you need to really worry about. I will say though, that as an endurance athlete, you actually need even a little more just because as, as you know, I mean, when you go for a long run, sure, you burn fat as fuel, but some of that is muscle too. Right. So over time, you will lose a bit of muscle and therefore strength over time, and then strength to weight ratio goes down, and it's the last thing you want. So I think with endurance athletes, making sure they get enough protein can take a little more care, but that's it's quite easy to, obviously, you know, bag and things like that have a protein <laughs> say, in them. But. If, you, if you didn't do a plug right then, I was going to be very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, it doesn't even have to be vega. Like, you can just mix, you know, pea protein and rice protein and greens right. and stuff too, right? Like, it's, or even just, yeah, like buckwheat cereal, like sprouted buckwheat cereal and have, you know, just that's weird thing that popped in my head that's related to the protein thing. Do you have thoughts about um, what's been happening in the meat substitute world lately, like Beyond Burgers and whatever the hell they're called, Impossible Burgers and all the rest? Yeah, you know, it's so, so their big mission, of course, is to, to be broad and they're making food for non-vegans, non-vegans, non-vegetarians. And when Beyond Meat first started, you know, coming to retail and putting their products right next to meat, a lot of people didn't get that. They thought, well, vegans don't shop there. And like, well, it's not for vegans, or but but it's vegan, right? It's like, yeah, it's vegan, but it's not for vegans. Like, And a lot of people just couldn't wrap their head around it. But um, Ethan at Beyond Meat is, I think, a great visionary and has such, you know, great morals and really wants to to make a big change and wants more folks to eat plants and, and fewer animals. And by doing that, obviously selling stuff to vegans is, is, is not going to get you there. So you got to 
you got to bring the meat eaters in, you know, you got to, got to get it uh, next to the meat. And then if it's price parity, we're, you know, it's getting close now and environmentally it's better. And obviously there's no animals being killed, you know, people are, are then going to give it some serious thought. And, and of course, being in fast food restaurants now and, you know, and some people not being able to taste the difference and, and that's what they want. And yeah. people who have been told their cholesterol is too high or they, you know, they got to cut out meat, but they don't want to. They've eaten a standard American diet for 40, 50 years and they want to keep eating what their brain thinks is meat, then, you know, it's, it's going to help. Do you have any thoughts about uh, lab-grown meat? You know, it's going to be interesting because, yeah, there are a few companies doing that now, of course, nothing that's to market yet, but it'll be interesting to see how people, just how they respond, you know, are people interested in that? You know, because vegetarians, vegans, a lot of the ones I know would not want that because they don't, they don't want meat. <laughs> now there's this whole other phase too of like there's dairy and now even eggs, not, not to market yet, not with the eggs anyways, that created, they, they're real eggs, but without a chicken. So it's created through fermentation and yeast but chemically, it's exactly the same. You know, it is egg protein or it is dairy. Like there's this company called Perfect Day that makes dairy without a cow. And by a lot, like it is dairy. <laughs> it's totally fascinating. And I love the sort of mind bending conversations that it creates because so many vegans are at least claim to be vegans for ethical reasons and want to keep animal suffering down. And so it's like, all right, well, here's a way of getting those products without animal suffering. And you just watch their brains explode. Yeah, no, exactly. And and that's what I think some of these companies are doing really well is they know their market is, is not vegans mm -hmm. and they don't even market to them. Vegans will find out about it. You don't have to tell vegans about, you know, all meat alternatives. So, yeah, I think it's very interesting. And I, you know, I know some folks who, who have invested in these, these sell meat companies who are, are very smart and, you know, it's, it's about scaling. Like right now they can create it, but it's, it's so expensive and oh, it's yeah. got to come way, way, way down in price to actually make it viable, which could happen. But again, it's just like, how do people perceive it? Well, it's, it's a matter of marketing, you know, if they do a really good marketing campaign and convince folks that who do eat meat, that this is a better type of meat, like maybe there's, there's more DHA omega-3 in it. Maybe there's, you know, there's plant sterols in it that will actually lower bad cholesterol. Like who knows, right? Like maybe it's actually better because if you just create the same, then I agree. I, I think there's less of a value proposition there. They're saying, yeah. well, why don't I just eat meat? I don't care about the ethical part. And, you know, I, I don't want my like Franken food or whatever they, they call it. Right. Better. That's a really interesting point because if it really is just like meat, people will, meat eaters will definitely think, well, I'd rather just get it from a cow than a lab. That makes no sense. Right. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's an interesting thing. If it doesn't have a value add, there really is no value for the people who are going to make a difference. Well, that's kind of like, I mean, you know, Tesla, they, like cars are safer than others. They accelerate better. They handle better. And oh, by the way, they're electric too. Like right. that's, they don't lead with that. They're just better. Right. And one of the things that makes them better, sure, they don't need gas. And if you have a solar panel, it's like you've got a solar powered car and that's pretty awesome. But that's just kind of on the side, you know, they just, people love them because they, they drive well. Uh, you know, ironically, I've driven Tesla since the original Roadster, which was super fun. When they opened up the first showroom in Boulder and I just walked in while everyone else was just gawking at the car, I just walked in and said, so what does it take for a guy to drive one of these? So they assumed I had $150,000 to burn, which I did not. But then every time they had some sort of event for drivers, they would invite me and just you know give me a car to drive. And oh. it was terribly fun. But I'm a big fan of Nimble. And while I love how fast the Tesla is, I don't like the fact that it feels like I'm driving a house just in terms of the weight. 
And so I was just reading about massless batteries, which is basically batteries built into the frame of the car. So they're not adding additional weight. And when they crack the code on that, and basically the battery is the car, and it's not going to weigh a whole lot more than the supercharged Subaru BRZ that I'm driving, I am all in because, man, I do like the speed and the torque, I will confess, as a sprinter. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think battery technology is, is the big thing that's really going to yeah. break the whole world open for sure. And that's, you know, improving in leaps and bounds, of course, as, as I'm sure you know. Well, I've been waiting. Um, when we were pitching to investors for Zero Shoes years ago, we met these a, a bunch of guys who were working on, um, come on, I just lost it. Uh, God, this is crazy. I've got the image in my head and I'm, I just blanked on the word that I'm looking for. Silicone-based batteries. It's not circuit boards. What's the word I can't find? This other battery type thing. Come on. It'll pop into my head as soon as we're done talking. Anyway, it's a whole different technology for batteries than chemicals, basically. And what it allows you to do is recharge them almost instantly, comparatively. And they're super light. They hold more power. I mean, it's there's a lot of possibilities, but right now they're only making them you know, this big, not nearly enough for a car. So again, 200 years from now, shit's going to be very interesting. <laughs> I hope. I hope. Anyway, is there anything that you can think of that we haven't touched on that you want to just share with human beings before we call it a wonderful hour of chatting? Well, you know, I can talk about my my latest project. Oh my God. Sorry. That's where I was going next. What the hell are you doing now, Brendan? (laughs) Well, one of the things, so I, you know, I hadn't drank in 14 years. I just didn't drink because I just didn't feel good from doing it. Mm. And, um, And then about two years ago, I was at Whole Foods and I saw there's this brand called 101 cider and it had just one ingredient it was just just apples mm-hmm. but it had zero sugar and it had probiotics and it had all these organic acids listed and it was really really interesting so i thought how can this is apples but has no sugar i didn't get it so i emailed info at 101cider.com this guy mark responds right away and explained fermentation to me and how you know you, you ferment stuff and all the sugar gets eaten and it replaces it with with alcohol and mm-hmm. with probiotics and organic acids. I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. And so I tried it, loved it, felt great. No hangover, went to the gym soon after. And then, yeah, we became friends and best in the company. And then we've just started something together, which is called pulp culture, which is fermented juice with adaptogens blended in. So it's got cool. things like lion's mane and reishi and these different types of mushrooms and fermented juice. <laughs> so again, this is one of those examples that if we did a focus group, this never would have got off the ground. No one has ever said on earth, I would like fermented juice with mushrooms. <laughs> well, you know, there's that one guy, but no one talks to him. That's yeah. really interesting. We got turned on to cider just very recently. Some pandemic things, people were doing virtual events and they did a virtual chocolate and cider pairing. And my wife and I are total chocolate snobs. This is all single bean, single origin, a lot, mostly from Madagascar, this one particular chocolate variety called Criollo, which is like honey with chocolate flavor, and then a local cider company. And it was wonderful. And the different flavors, so much more interesting than any other. I don't drink very much at all. Um, The only three things I drink now, cider, some crazy sort of um, artisanal sake and Prosecco. And I think I've had a bottle of each of those in my fridge for at least two years. That's how often we drink. But right. the ciders were really, really interesting. And the pairings with chocolate was uh, totally geeky and delightful. Yeah, no, I, I've learned a ton. Mark, my partner in this is so knowledgeable. And yeah, we make it all downtown in LA. It's so simple. We just get you know all this unpasteurized juice comes down from Oregon and in these tanker trucks, we fill the tanks and it just sits there and it ferments. 
And then we blend in adaptions, we can it, and that's it. <laughs> um, have you guys played, I mean, how are you sourcing the apples? Because that was the part in this test, this tasting that was so fascinating. These were all like heirloom apples and each one so radically different than the next. Same thing. Yeah. So they're all like what we would call it crab apples, you know, little ones mm -hmm. they are not these big fruit like right. eating apples. Yeah. And it's great too, because they're all fed with groundwater. They don't need to be irrigated. So as a California company, we're very conscious of water consumption, of course. So, you know, snow comes down, goes in the ground, tree draws it up into the apples, gets pressed. So it's basically, you know, just Pacific Northwest water drawn into these apples and that's it. So like yeah, that. it's, it's fun. Like I'm, like I say, I'm learning a ton. It's in Whole Foods now, all the Whole Foods in California will be in all the Whole Foods in the country by the end of next month and online as well. People can order it because it's classified as wine because it's fermented juice. So you can actually order so direct to consumer, whereas like cider and, or not cider, um, but like beer and seltzer, right. you can't, can't do that legally shipping. So. Yeah, even just saying apple wine, people don't respond to. I mean, it, it's an interesting category because people don't have a real good frame of reference for it because they certainly haven't had high quality product before. No. And, and so I'll, I'm very curious to see how that evolves because it's something that really deserves to evolve. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'll, no, I'll send you some. Just, oh, uh, check it out. well, okay. I would definitely not say no to that. So anything else keeping you busy during during your waking hours or sleeping hours for that matter? No, you know, I do do some other kind of look at early stage plant-based companies um, to see if I can be helpful as, you know, as investor and just kind of helping them out. Um, so a little, little bit of that. Blue Horizon is um, this venture capital group out of Switzerland that I'm working with as well. Same kind of thing. We just look at early stage plant-based companies and, and see if, uh, if we think we can help and then make an investment if we feel we can and work very closely with the founders oh, uh, to help them grow to not make you know, same mistakes that, that we made back in the day. It's like, why only apply what you've learned once, right? Like, why not apply it and help others? So yeah, it's kind of, kind of what, I'm, what I'm doing right now. Well, my wife has a line about footwear. She says, you know, there's no reason to start another shoe company. There's enough on the planet, unless what you're doing changes people's lives. So right. same thing. It's wonderful to hear that what you're doing um, with your time is things that really can change people's lives. And I want to sort of leave on this question slash thought, which is, for people who haven't really, I mean, plant-based is becoming a buzzword. For people who haven't really done that experiment, made that transition, I'm not suggesting everyone should make the transition, but what would you suggest to someone who hasn't as a way of just you know, getting their toe in the water? Again, not suggesting they need to dive in, but just to, to have an experience to see what that would be like for them. Yeah, I think start slow and ease into it. Just think of adding, not subtracting, like just have a big green smoothie each morning, you know, start adding some of those foods I talked about. Before you know it, your palate will start to change. You won't crave the old stuff anymore. And that's what you want, right? Like you said off the top of the show too, you know, like life is short. You got to enjoy it. Like if you don't like one thing, don't do it. Do something else. Yeah. I'm not an advocate of, you know, pushing through stuff that you hate every day. Like your willpower is finite. You're going to, you're just not going to enjoy it. And um, when you need willpower for something that you really got to face, you're not going to have it if you're, you're constantly doing things you don't enjoy. So totally agree there. And before you know it, your palate will change and you won't feel deprived. You won't feel as though you want to eat those foods that used to be appealing. You just taste food differently. And then you just eat whatever you want. And it just happens to be really good food. And that's a lifestyle change, not just diet, obviously. So that's what you want. 
Love it. Well, dude, thank you so much. It's been a total, total pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you or with anything that you want them to get in touch with other than you, what should they do? Uh, LinkedIn's pretty good. I think that's kind of my most up-to-date thing. <laughs> my website's actually very not up-to-date. But yeah, LinkedIn's good or Instagram's good too. It's just my name, Instagram. Even though I can spell it, um, I will let you spell it for humans. Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, and Brazier is B-R-A-Z-I-E-R. Perfect. So find him on LinkedIn. And uh, Brendan, again, total, total pleasure. Looking forward to what's next. And for everybody else, thanks for joining us. Again, if you want to um, check out previous episodes and find out what's going on with what we're doing at The Movement Movement, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find where you can find us on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and all the places where podcasts are podcasted because we're all over those as well. And as always... Oh, if you have any questions or comments, if there's anyone you could think of who should be on the show, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And most importantly, go out, have fun and live life feet first.